0: Hi, welcome to the podcast of our Wednesday night study here at First Baptist Church to Queen. As we go through the book of Revelation, my name is Dr. Josh Herwick. I am the pastor here at First Baptist to Queen, and uh, we are going to, over the next few months, be looking verse by verse through the book of Revelation uh, on our Wednesday nights. Uh, It's more of a discussion-based study in the room on Wednesday night, but here on the podcast, we're just going to go through the teaching. And if you have any questions or comments, please uh, contact us uh, here at First Baptist Church Dequeen at dequeen.church is our website. Uh, you can find all the information there you need to get in contact with us, and we can't wait to hear from you. But feel free to drop a like or share uh, this podcast with those if you find it helpful. But let's dive right in. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, uh, John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, there's several things there in verse one that are are very, very interesting. First off, the book of Revelation itself is singular. The word is singular. Many people say revelations. It's actually the revelation. Uh, in the Greek, the word is singular. So it's singular. Revelation is the name of the book, not revelations, uh, even though there are several instances throughout the book that John is is kind of given a continuous vision, maybe with little pause breaks here and there. Or uh, you could say he's given several visions, but one continuous revelation. And so that's what this book is all about. And these first few verses here in chapter 1 are kind of a preface that John gives before the vision, this first vision begins. Uh, And so he writes here this opening uh, little section, this introduction, that this is the revelation of Jesus that God is giving to the people to know about what is yet to come. And he says some three things there about himself, uh, John that he first bore witness to the Word of God, to the testimony of Jesus, and everything that he saw. Now, these are very important. I mean, the Word of God is Scripture, the testimony of Jesus, that's the words of Jesus, the things that he said, and everything that he saw is his own personal experience. Now, these three, three things are singled out here in the very first verse, the very second verse uh, there, Because they are meant to cover every avenue of divine communication. Scripture, uh, for, for them the the physical scripture they had would have been you know the Jewish scriptures the Old Testament uh, the words of Jesus Jesus's uh, ministry Jesus's teachings and then John himself being the last apostle alive the last of the twelve disciples still alive everything he saw everything he experienced is a part of how God communicates to the world because God communicated to him Jesus communicated to him and so he's supposed to share every Avenue of divine communication similarly we today Christians still, alive today, are to do the same thing. Communicate the Word of God, God's Scripture, the testimony of Christ, the words of Jesus, and our own personal experience with God as well, our own personal testimony. And these things, he says right there, uh, that John is supposed to communicate from this book of Revelation are things that will soon take place. And that word soon is very Interesting. I mean, things that we might consider soon aren't things that we would think God would consider soon. We would think it's relative, this soon idea. But really, in saying soon, there, John is meaning to instigate urgency with his readers. That he wants his readers to understand these things will take place soon. And and we need to be urgent in how we communicate all of these things, Scripture and and Jesus' testimony and our own personal experience. And then in verse 3, it is written, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So if you read, read aloud, uh, he indicates in, in, uh, indicates there, uh, you are blessed. This book, the book of Revelation, this specific prophecy, and the people who hear you reading it aloud are also blessed but why why are they blessed? well this book itself this this revelation is preparation preparation for what is to come uh, because he says there uh, if you read it, if you hear it and you keep it because the time is about to come the time is near so what it's doing is is it's emphasizing focus on the immediate things of God the blessing comes when someone hears, or when someone reads it and hears it within themselves, and then obeys the words that are, ca- that are contained therein. Now, in verse 4, John introduces himself to the readers. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits... Who are before his throne, and then the very first part there, verse 5 and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he says, I am John, and he's writing to seven churches that are going to be mentioned in just a little bit. And he says, Grace to you, peace from him. And so that's an introduction, he, he's, he's offering a blessing, grace, and peace from Jesus. Uh, who is, was, and is to come. He's eternal. God never changes. He's always the same. Uh, But he's writing to the seven churches. What is the the significance of the seven churches? I mean, the number seven is used a whole lot throughout the book of Revelation. Why seven? Well, seven is the number of completion. It's the number of perfection. And uh, particularly, these seven churches that will be mentioned in a moment Uh, When you travel from city to city, uh, wherein these churches are contained, they form a rough circle. So the courier of this book, this letter, would take um, this revelation as communicated to John, as he would write down. And uh, the courier would take it from city to city and would travel in a rough circle, making it back to where he started. After having delivered this letter to all those Churches, And even though this, uh, in the seven churches idea, seven being the number of completeness, uh, the complete church, um, though this uh, letter was written to individual churches, it could also, and most likely is, referring to the whole church, big C, capital C, church, by John's usage of the word seven here. But taking on that word seven, at the end there of verse four, uh, we get a description of God, him who was, who is, was, and is to come, and then we get a description of what he says are seven spirits before God's throne, and then also Jesus Christ. And so who are the seven spirits? Is this some new idea that we've never heard of before in scripture? Seven spirits sitting before God, and you got God, you got seven spirits, you got Jesus, Well, probably not some new random idea about seven spirits. Again, seven being the number of completeness, being the number of perfection. You have God, you have Jesus. Uh, The third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit, God's complete and perfect spirit, as the reference there falls in between both God and Jesus. So let's continue on there in verses 5 and 6. So, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, he says Jesus, he's a faithful witness, he's the firstborn of the dead. Now, people died before Jesus did, but being the firstborn of of the dead has great significance he was the first to die and be eternally raised now there were people that jesus himself raised from the dead who rose from the dead before he rose from the dead but those people had to die again the reason jesus is first born of the dead is that he was eternally raised never to die again and so uh, by him doing that and us believing in him His death and resurrection as the Son of God, he releases us from our sins. We're no longer bound to the constraints of eternal death. And by him doing that, we are then made, as that verse says, we are made into a kingdom. And we are made priests. Priests, we can have absolute communication with God with no intermediary. We are priests. We uh, can talk to God. We have all the the authority and power and peace that that comes with that title. And uh, in this direct access, we have to God. Verse 7 and 8. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Now he says he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him. But uh, is his coming in the clouds the rapture, or is it the second coming? Uh, We're going to talk about those in the coming weeks uh, in in great detail. Uh, But which is it here? Is it the rapture or is it the second coming? Um, We get a little indication here. And now whatever your position on the rapture, the second coming, and as in where it falls uh, in the timeline of uh, the end of days, Uh, we will be discussing all of those different avenues as we get into it later on in the book of revelation. And I'll uh, give you my thoughts on it as well. But what we have here, uh, he says he's coming. And when he comes in this particular instance here in verse seven, uh, he will be seen. And those who pierced him, his opponents, his, his enemy, those who refuse to believe is who that's symbolizing from all the tribes of the earth. They will wail On account of him, they will mourn, as some translations say, on account of him because he is coming. They will mourn over him because the judgment is coming with him. And so the mourning of the people is because of the judgment, the punishment they will receive for their refusal to believe. And as Revelation later on reveals, the judgment that that in which that occurs comes after the second coming. So this coming of Jesus that he talks about coming in the clouds uh, would seem to be the second coming, specifically, and not the rapture. Now verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So John is exiled this island of Patmos. It's a little island. It's about four miles by eight miles. Uh, And he's exiled there because of the word of God, because he has been preaching and proclaiming and sharing with people to come to know Jesus. And so he is basically arrested and uh, sentenced to this island in hopes that he would die there. But he mentions, I think, something very significant here. Uh, in, in writing to the people he's writing to, he says, I am your brother. I am your partner in tribulation, your partner in the kingdom and your partner in patient endurance. Uh, and he connects all of that in Jesus. He says, in Jesus, the tribulation in Jesus, the kingdom in Jesus, the patient endurance in Jesus now, this is very important, the partner and the brother here that John calls himself, relates himself to the people who are, who are reading this, hearing this, because if there's anybody who could be classified as uh, higher a higher class than other Christians, it would be John at this point. He is the last disciple left alive. He is the last apostle left alive. And he could say, well, I'm... The guy, and I've been through more than you've been through. I've suffered more than you've suffered. I saw Jesus with my own eyeballs. I was there when he was crucified. I saw him when he rose from the dead. I took care of his mother after he was gone. I am John. Listen to my words. But that's not what he does. He uses language here to not only humble himself, but to elevate those he's writing to and and bring great unification between himself and them. He says, I am your brother, your partner in the tribulation in the kingdom in patient endurance no matter who suffered more no matter who's been through more his his point here is that we're all connected in Jesus John, he's a fellow endurer of hard times. He's a fellow endurer of the joy of the kingdom and of the perseverance that got them through the hard times. And he's saying, we're all in this together. The issue isn't who's been through more and who's suffered the most um, or who Jesus likes the most, because that's not the way Jesus works. He says, the point is Jesus, you're serving him. I'm serving him, whether you're 90 or you're nine, we're serving Jesus together. Now look at verses 10 and 11. John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. Now right up there in verse 10, I want to zero in on something here. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, the phrase on the Lord's day is used only here in all of Scripture. And John doesn't elaborate on its usage and what he specifically means by using that phrase. I mean, in modern American church, when we hear on the Lord's day, we naturally think of Sunday because that's what we use it on the Lord's day. We think of Sunday. We think of going to the church facility, the church building. Now, John, in, in using that Uh, He was most likely talking about Sunday, yes, but not in terms of it being a church day. In saying the Lord's Day, he is praising Jesus, honoring Jesus' resurrection by declaring Sunday as a day of victory. He's calling it the Lord's Day because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, was a Sunday and so every Sunday, he, he puts a special emphasis on Jesus' victory over death. has nothing to do with pews. has nothing to do with a building. has nothing to do with three songs, a sermon, an offering, and another song, and then you leave. It has to do with Jesus' conquering death, Jesus' great day of victory. That's why he calls it the Lord's Day. And then he says he's, in, in that particular moment, on that particular Lord's Day, he says he's in the Spirit. So what does it mean then to be in the Spirit? Well, he was in the Spirit, and because he was in the Spirit, he was able to hear this voice, this voice that spoke to him. I mean, the way it's written, it would have us to believe that if he wasn't in the Spirit in this way, he would not have heard the voice. The voice may have spoken, but if he wasn't in the Spirit, he would not have heard it. So to be in the Spirit is John is open and willing to hear from the Holy Spirit on the day of worship. When when the voice came to him. He was, uh, to put it another way, to be in the Spirit, he was singularly focused on Jesus with an uncluttered mind. And that may be a problem, with us today, a reason many of us are not in the Spirit very often, if ever, is because our mind is so cluttered with so many different things, either by default or intentionality. We allow the clutter to, to permeate us by by constantly having something to stream, to veg out, or constantly having something to scroll in order to keep us occupied, or... or, or trying to run through all kinds of different you know, doomsday scenarios in our minds about the worst possible outcome of the experience we're having, and, and, and we allow the clutter to fly through our brain and never sit singularly focused on Jesus. And here's John is, singularly focused with an uncluttered mind. He's in the Spirit, and because he's in the Spirit, he hears this loud voice like a trumpet, that gives him instruction, that kicks off this entire book of Revelation. Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So John writes, he says, "I I saw one like a son of man. Now, he does his best throughout the entire book of Revelation using descriptive language that he had in the first century to describe what he's seeing. And so this being that he's seeing is in appearance similar to a man. And he says, notice, he says a son of man. He uses the indirect object a, a son of man. This is not a version of, you know, the Son of Man that is mentioned in the Gospels itself, but rather it's a direct reference, a Son of Man, a direct reference to the prophecy in Daniel 7.13, talking about the coming Messiah. Now, it's still pointing to Jesus, but just in a different context. So this is Jesus. And now again, remember, this is John, one of the disciples, one of the apostles, one of the guys who saw Jesus and walked with Jesus 24-7 for a couple of years. And so here he is now. Six some odd decades later, and he's seeing Jesus again. What do you think is going through his mind? Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. John is describing what is literally before his eyes as best he can in his understanding. And many scholars and people, you know, assign different meanings to these uh, uh, descriptors that he gives in these two verses, like white hair, which, I mean, some of these descriptors are dead on. White hair is indicative of of wisdom, Uh, the fire-like eyes, indicative of passion, spiritedness, uh, the bronze could be a reference to the altar in the temple upon which the offering was made. He had a strong, powerful voice like the voice of God. Um, and as is often the case when it comes to prophecy, there could be more than one specific meeting, an immediate meaning and a future meaning And so each of these could be referring to the symbolism of those elements, but the language that Is used by John to describe these different elements also comes word for word from Old Testament prophecy. Direct references and descriptions of the appearance of, from the book of Daniel and Ezekiel, God and the coming Messiah, the Son of God. White wool hair from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. Fire eyes from Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The voice of rushing waters from Ezekiel 43, verse 2. And so he's describing his his knowledge of Scripture, his knowledge of the Old Testament, is being used to describe the experience that God is giving him now in the moment. Should emphasize to us also the 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 knowledge of Scripture we need to have, um, so that we can help describe to others what God or what we experience from God today. And so he sees this. He sees Jesus in front of him. He describes him, but he notices something else is going on with. Jesus, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now the sword coming from his mouth imagery, uh, that happens in another place, in Revelation uh, chapter 19. In that instance, in Revelation 19, 12 to 15, uh, the sword is a weapon coming from the mouth of the Son of God, the mouth of uh, a Jesus um, in revelation 19 12 to 15 uh, it's wielded against the enemies of god uh, coming from the mouth it is the word of god the sword of the spirit uh, is the word of god and revelation 19 is the word of god being used by the word of god john chapter 1 maybe that's maybe this imagery is where john got the idea of john chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he is the word the word of God. Uh, And so we have here uh, Jesus, who has seven stars in his right hand. He has a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And his face is shining like the sun in full strength. Now, these stars, we don't know what they are yet. We'll find out in a couple of verses. But at this point, being in Jesus' right hand, we do know the stars are protected in the hand of Jesus. But his face shining like the sun should bring something to our mind. There's another instance where John saw Jesus' face shining like the sun. That's Matthew 17, verse 2, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus demonstrated God's glory before Peter, James, and John. So here John is seeing something that he's already seen, the transfiguration of Jesus, a a uh, uh, demonstration of God's glory to the extent they could experience there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Here he's getting it again. The face of Jesus shining like the sun in full strength, like burning his retinas out, which is why he reacts the way he does in verses 17, 18, and 19. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. So he falls down like a dead man, as though he has been struck dead. He's not lying prostrate uh, in, in 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 you know intentional active worship. He's falling down overwhelmed at seeing Jesus again in some of his revealed glory. And Jesus describes himself using language that is also used to describe God, both in Revelation 1.8, in Revelation 4.10, and in Revelation 10.6. Uh, and so it's it's language used to describe God, and some of that same language is used to de- describe Jesus uh, in those instances. And so the affirmation here from Jesus uh, he is confirming the sameness that he has with God himself, the unification of Jesus and God, that Jesus is God. Jesus' divinity is what he himself is is claiming here. And then he gives John that issue again. Write this stuff down. Write down everything you're about to experience. And then he gives John kind of the outline of how the interpretation of the rest of the book of Revelation is to take place. Verse 20 of Revelation chapter 1. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, he says, well, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstands are seven churches and Jesus is standing in the middle of them. Jesus should be in the middle of our churches. He should be. But then he says that the, that the stars are angels, and so, giving this description, he helps us understand how we're supposed to interpret some of the prophecy that they're about to experience. A pattern being said of how to interpret. Um, but the seven stars in his right hand are seven angels. Now, the word angels, angelos, means messenger in the Greek. The messenger of the churches, which uh, would be the pastor of the churches. Now, there are all Christians should be messengers of the the message of jesus the commission of jesus to the world but uh the way it's used here the word is used here he's talking about the one who uh is responsible to god for the message of god being delivered to the church and so that would be the pastor the preacher and so these seven stars in the right hand of god the are the pastors and so he uses the word angel there so naturally me being a pastor all pastors are angels right that, that's a joke. They're not. Obviously, I am far from that by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, the, these are the pastors, seven stars, seven angels. These are seven pastors of the seven churches. And he kicks it right off in chapter two, just dives right in headfirst into a specific word for the very first church, the church in the city of Ephesus. So Revelation chapter two, verses one and two. Jesus, these are the words of Jesus being written by John. This isn't from John. This is from Jesus. And so if you're reading along in your Bible this, and you have a, you know, a red letter edition, this would be written in red. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. So right off the bat, he reiterates part of the description of himself. Uh, He holds the seven stars. He walks among the seven lampstands. He says, I know. And so it sounds like these guys are fantastic. This is who we should try to be like. Jesus knows what they do, how hard they work their toil, their patient endurance. They can't stand evil being in their midst. If anyone comes along and says there's something great, then this church tests those people. When they're found to be false, they call them out for that fact. Uh, These people are righteous and cannot tolerate evil people in acting in their midst as hypocritically. They work really hard at their Christianity, the people of this church. They do what is right. They test self-confidence. Proclaimed apostles. Um, And look what he says in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently. So he says that again. He said that earlier up in verse 2. Patient endurance. And now here in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. They keep persevering. They keep working hard for the sake of Jesus and don't get tired of pursuing Jesus. So he says all this good about them. And then he says verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now how many of you guys listening have had somebody give you compliment after compliment and they just give you one little small item of critique and all you can remember is the negative comment and you forget all the good that it just said. It's kind of like what's going on here. But Jesus said all these great things they've been doing all these good things but he says they have abandoned, they have left behind, they have intentionally walked away from the love they had at first. Now, this love, this isn't Jesus. This uh, isn't some other person. This isn't love they have for each other. Uh, I guess kind of you could say it, it is a little bit Jesus, uh, but the way the word love is used in Revelation typically doesn't refer to individuals. This is um, the way in which they loved at first when they first believed the 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 way in which they demonstrated their love for the things of God when they first believed they don't have that anymore Love motivating all those good actions that Jesus just talked about them doing is not motivated by love within them. Maybe it's motivated by duty. Maybe it's just motivated by habit. Maybe it's just muscle memory that they're doing those things and there's no love contained in them as they do them. And Jesus is saying, guys, you're you're missing it. You're missing it. You need to be having the love there. Otherwise, the stuff doesn't mean anything. You can do good all day long, but if there's no love for Jesus in the midst of the things you're doing, we need to reevaluate ourselves. Take a spiritual, assess a spiritual audit of our hearts. And he says this to them. He says, so you've abandoned the love you had at first. Verse five of chapter two. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So, I mean, that is huge. He's going to remove their lamps, the entire church. He's going to remove the church, destroy the church there in Ephesus if the people don't turn around, if the people don't repent and and, uh, uh, re-engage the love that they have had in the past. So he gives them three things to do there in that verse. Remember where they had come from, for they had been spiritually. Repent of their sin deep within them. And do the love works that they did when they first became believers. So he wants them to remember how their hearts were before. Repent of the things that pulled their hearts away from that that path and then go back to doing what they're doing with the love they should have had the whole time. And then he gives them another compliment here in verse 6. He says, but it's not all bad. He's just talked about love, and now he talks about hate. Verse 6, yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now that is power. That's a strong. Hate is a very strong word. And it's used so forcefully here after talking about love, bringing emphasis to this this phrase: "They hate Jesus. Hates now. Jesus doesn't hate a whole lot of stuff, but he hates this thing. But notice, there verse six, he doesn't hate the people. He doesn't hate the people. He hates what they're doing. He hates the sin. He hates the evil deeds." Of the Nicolaitans, we don't know really anything about these people. They're mentioned here. They're mentioned one other place yeah, later on uh, in in Revelation. Actually, uh, we just know they were doing things opposed to the design and plan of Jesus. And so, because they were working in opposition to Jesus, their their workings were not approved by Jesus, and so that was hated. He says, then, if you have an ear, then hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is for all of us. This isn't just the church in Ephesus. He says, if you have an ear, if you are reading this at some point in the future, even for us today, in this modern day and time, if we have ears to hear what he's given us to hear, then hear what the Spirit is saying to these churches, because it's also applicable to us. It's also something that can be taken by us and used by us. He says to the one who conquers, to the one who has victory, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, victory is is a theme in John. It's a theme that John uses um, repeatedly. It says he who overcomes or perseveres till the end, who 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 has true faith, faith and true faith is faith that perseveres. True faith is faith that lasts. That's true belief. Will be able to partake of the tree of life that is in the paradise of God that John actually talks about in revelation 22. And this paradise is an experience that only comes from the presence of God, the physical presence of God. And that will be experienced someday to those who do believe. And so that there, that's where we're going to stop for now. We're going to continue on with the letters to the churches um, next week. Uh, with the rest of Revelation chapter 2 and get as far through Revelation chapter 3 as we can. Um, but I encourage you to read Revelation. I encourage you not to be scared by what's in the book of Revelation. It is encouraging for us. And as I said at the beginning, it is, it is a, a cause to um, be refocused on the urgency of the message of Christ. So thank you for listening to this again uh, for joining us on this, this podcast, this journey through the book of Revelation. I encourage you, please, uh, like this, leave a comment uh, about it, uh, share this with anyone who, who you find would be interested in uh, the end of days, the end times, as uh, or from a biblical perspective. Uh, and I hope that you will join us again next week as we continue to explore Jesus' revelation of what is going to happen at the end.